chapter number 51 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arthur Piantidosi. Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Chapter 51. Chapter 51. Affording an explanation of more mysteries than one, and comprehending a proposal of marriage with no word of settlement or pin money. The events narrated in the last chapter were yet but two days old when Oliver found himself at three o'clock in the afternoon in a travelling carriage rolling fast towards his native town. Mrs. Maylie and Rose and Miss Bedwin and the good doctor were with him. Mr. Brownlow followed by a post-chaise, accompanied by one other person whose name had not been mentioned. They had not talked much upon the way, for Oliver was in a flutter of agitation and uncertainty which deprived him of the power of collecting his thoughts, and almost of speech, and appeared to have scarcely less effect on his companions, who shared it in at least an equal degree. He and the two ladies had been very careful in vain, acquainted by Mr. Brownlow with the nature of the admissions which had been forced from monks, and though they knew that the object of their present journey was to complete the work which had been so well begun, still the whole matter was enveloped in enough of doubt and mystery to leave them at the endurance of the most intense suspense. A safe-behind friend had, with Mr. Brownlow's assistance, cautiously stopped all channels of communication through which they could receive intelligence of the dreadful occurrences that so recently taken place. It was quite true, he said, that they must know them before long, but it might be a better time than the present, and it could not be worse. So they travelled on in silence, each busied with reflections on the object which brought them together, and no one disposed to give utterance to the thoughts which crowded upon all. But if Oliver, under these influences, remained silent while they journeyed towards his birthplace by a road he had never seen, how the whole current of his elections ran back to old times, what a crowd of emotions were wakened up in his breast when they turned into that which they traversed on foot, a poor, houseless, wandering boy, without a friend to help him, or a roof to shelter his head. See there! cried Oliver eagerly grasping the hand of Rose, and pointing out of the carriage window. That's the style I came over. There are the hedges I crept behind, for fear anyone should throw, take me and force me back. Yonder is the path across the fields, leading to the old house where I was a little child. Oh, Dick, Dick, my dear old friend, if I could only see you now. You will see him soon, replied Rose, gently taking his folded hands between her own. You should tell him how happy you are. And rich you've grown, and that in all your happiness you have none so great as the coming back to make him happy too. Yes, yes, said Oliver. We'll, we'll take him away from here, and have him clothed and taught, and said to some quiet country where he grows strong and well. Shall we? Rose nodded. Yes, for the boy was smiling through such happy tears that she could not speak. You will be good and kind to him, for you are to everyone said Oliver. It will make me cry, I know, to hear what he can tell. But never mind, never mind. It will all be over, and you will smile again. I know that, too. But think how ashamed she is. You did the same of me. He said, God bless you. To me when I ran away, cried the boy with a burst of affectionate emotion. 
and I will say, God bless you now, and show him how I love him for it. As they approached the town and at length rode through its narrow streets, it became a matter of small difficulty to restrain the boy within reasonable bounds. There were sourberries, the undertaker's just as it used to be, only smaller and less imposing in appearance, and he remembered it. There were all the well-known shops and houses, with almost every one of which he had some slight incident connected. There was Gamfield's cart, the very cart he used to have, standing at the old public-house door. There was that workhouse, the drear prison of his youthful days, with its dismal windows frowning on the street. There was the same lean porter standing at the gate, a sight of which involuntarily shrank back and laughed at himself for being so foolish, then cried, then laughed again. <laughs> there was uh, scores of faces at the doors and windows that he knew quite well. There was nearly everything as if he had left it but yesterday, and all his recent life had been but a happy dream. But it was pure, earnest, joyful reality. They drove straight to the door of the chief hotel, which Oliver used to stare up at with awe, and the mighty palace, but which had somehow fallen off in grandeur in size. And here was Mr. Grimwig, all ready to receive them, kissing the young lady, and the old one, too, when they got out of the coach, as if he were the grandfather of the whole party, all smiles and kindness, and not offering to eat his head, no, not once, not even when he conducted a very old post-boy about the nearest road to London, and maintained he knew it best, though he had only come that way once, and that time fast asleep. There was dinner repaired, and there were bedrooms ready, and everything was arranged as if by magic. Notwithstanding all this, when the hurry of the first half-hour was over, the same silence and constraint prevailed that had marked the journey down. Mr. Brownlow did not join at dinner, but reigned in a separate room. The two other gentlemen hurried in and out with anxious faces, and during the short intervals when they were present, conversed apart. Once Miss Maylie was called away, and after being absent for nearly an hour, returned with eyes swollen with weeping. All these things made Rose and Oliver, who were not in any new secrets, nervous and uncomfortable. They sat wondering in the silence, or if they had changed a few words, spoke in whispers, as if they were afraid to hear the sound of their own voices. At length, when the clock had come, and they began to think they worked and hear no more that night, Mr. Lawsburn and Mr. Grimwig entered the room, followed by Mr. Brownlow and a man whom Oliver almost shrieked with surprise to see for they told him it was his brother, and it was the same man he had met at the market town, and seen looking in with Fagin at the window of his little room. Monks cast a look of hate, which even then he could not dissemble at the astonished boy, and sat down near the door. Mr. Brownlow, with papers in his hand, walked to a table near which Rose and Oliver were seated. This is a painful task, said he, but these declarations, which have been signed in London before many gentlemen, must be in substance repeated here. I would not spare you to degradation, but we must hear from, from your own lips before we part, and you know why. Go on, said the person addressed, turning away his face. Quick! I've almost done enough, I think. Don't keep me here. This child, said Mr. Browner, drawing Oliver to him, laying his hand upon his head, is your half-brother, the illegitimate son of your father, my dear Fred, Edwin Leaford. 
by poor young Agnes Fleming, who died in giving him birth. Yes, said Monks, scowling at the trembling boy, the beating of whose heart he might have heard. That is a bastard child! The term you use, said Mr. Brownlow sternly, is a reproach to those long since passed beyond the evil censure of the world. It reflects disgrace on no one living except you who use it. Let that pass. He was born in his town. In the workhouse of this town, was the sudden reply. You have a sword in here. He pointed impatiently at the papers as he spoke. I must have it here, too, said Mr. Brownlow, looking round upon the listeners. Listen, then, you, returned Monks. His father being taken ill at Rome was joined by his wife, my mother, for whom we had long, long separated, who went from Paris and took me with her to look after his property, for what I know, for she had no great affection for him, nor he for her. He knew nothing of us, but his senses were gone, and he slumbered on till next day when he died. Among the papers in his desk were two, dated on the night his illness first came on, directed to yourself. He addressed himself to Mr. Brownlow, and enclosed in a few short lines to you, with the intimation on the cover of the package that it was not to be forwarded until after he was dead. One of these papers was a letter to this girl, Agnes. The other was a will. What of the letter? asked Mr. Brownlow. The letter! A sheet of paper crossed and crossed again with penitent confession and prayers to God to help her. It pawned a tale on the girl with some secret mystery. It's plain one day, when it is marrying her just then, and so she had gone on trusting patiently to him, until she trusted too far, and lost what none could ever give her back. She was at that time with her young denounce of her confinement. He told her all he had meant to do, to hide her shame if he lived, and prayed to her if he died not to curse his memory. Or think the consequences of her sin would be visited on her and her young child, for all the guilt was his. He reminded her of the day he had given her the little locket and the ring with her Christian name engraved upon it, and a blank left to that which would hope one day to have bestowed upon her, praying her yet to keep it and wear it next to her heart as she had done before, and then ran on wildly in the same words over and over again as if he had gone distracted. I believe he heard. The will, said Mr. Brownlow, as all of his tears fell fast. Monks was silent. The will, said Mr. Brownlow, speaking for him, was in the same spirit as the letter. He talked of miseries which his wife had brought upon him, of the rebellious disposition, vice, malice, and premature bad passions of you, his only son, who had been trained to hate him left you and your mother each with an annuity of eight hundred pounds. The bulk of his property he divided into two equal portions, one for Agnes Fleming and the other for their child, if it should be born alive and never come of age. If it were a girl, it was to inherit the money unconditionally, if but if a boy, only on the stipulation that in his minority it should never be stained his name with any public act of dishonour, meanness, cowardice, or wrong. He did this, he said, to mark his confidence in the other, and his conviction only strengthened my approaching death, 
that the child would share her gentle heart and noble nature. If he were disappointed in this expectation, then the money was to come to you. For then, and not till then, when both children were equal, would he recognise your prior claim upon his purse, who had none upon his heart, but hard, from an infant, in repulsed him with coldness and aversion. My mother, said Monks in a louder tone, do what woman should have done. She burnt this will. The letter never reached its detonation, but that and other proofs she kept in case they ever tried to lie away the plot. The girl's father and the truth of her with every aggravation and a violent hate. I love her for it now. Cunard, goaded by shame and dishonour, he fled with his children into a remote corner of Wales, changing this very name that his friend might never know of his retreat. And here, no great while afterwards, he was found dead in his bed. The girl had left her home in secret some weeks before. He'd searched for her on foot in every town and village near. It was on that night when he returned home, assured that she had destroyed herself to hide her shame at his, his own old heart broke. There was a short silence here until Mr. Brownlow caught the thread of the narrative. Years after this, he said, this man's, Edward Leaford's, mother came to me. He left her when only eighteen, robbed her of jewels and money, gambled, squandered, forged, and fled to London, where for two years he had associated with the lowest outcasts. She was sinking under a painful and incurable disease, in which to recover him before each if died. Inquiries were set on foot, and searches made, they were unavailing for a long time, but after it was successful, and he went back with her to France. There she died, said Monks, after a lingering illness, and on her deathbed she bequeathed these secrets to me, together with an unquenchable and deadly hatred of all whom they involved, though she need not have left that either that, for I had inherited it long before. She would not believe that the girl had destroyed herself and the child, too, but was filled with the impression that a male child had been born and was alive. I swore to her, if I ever I crossed my path to hunt it down, never to let it rest, to pursue it with the bitterest and most unrelenting animosity, to vent upon it the hatred that I deeply felt, and to spit upon the empty vaunt of that insulting will by dragging it, if I could, to the very gallows foot. She was right! He came in my way at last. I began well, and but for babbling traps, I would have finished it. I begun. As the villain folded his arms tight together and muttered curses on himself and the impotence of babble and malice, Mr. Brownlow turned to the terrified group beside him. It's plain that the Jew, who had been his old accomplice and confidant, had a large reward for keeping Bonnevin ensnared which some part was to be given up in the event of his being rescued. The dispute on this head had led to their visit to the country house for the purpose of identifying him. The locket and ring, said Mr. Brownlow, turning to monks. I bought them for the man and woman I told you of, who stole them from the nurse, who stole them from the corpse, answered monks without raising his eyes. You know what became of them? Mr. Brownlow nearly nodded to Mr. Grimwig, who was appearing with great alacrity as shortly returned, pushing in Mr. Bumble, 
and dragging an unwilling Hansel after him. You must see me, cried Mr. Bumble with ill-fated enthusiasm. Or that little river, oh, river, if you know how I've been grieving for you. Hold your tongue, fool, murmured Mrs. Bumble. Is it nature, nature, Miss Bumble? Remonstrated the workhouse master. Can't I be supposed to feel I was brought on my parochial week? Or see myself here, my ladies and gentlemen, of a very obvious description? I would love that boy as if he'd been my, my, my own for there, said Mr. Bumble, halting for an appropriate comparison. Moser, oh, my dear, you remember the blessed gentleman at what waistcoat? Ah, oh, he went have a long week and a little coffee with plated handles on the Come, sir, said Mr. Gruttenwig tartly. Suppress your feelings. Oh, you do my endeavours, sir, replied Mr. Bumble. How oh, you do, sir? I hope you very well. This salutation was addressed to Mr. Brownlow, who had stepped up to within a short distance of a respectable couple. Inquired as he pointed to Monks, Do you know that person? No, replied Mrs. Bumble flatly. Perhaps you don't, said Mr. Brownlow, addressing a spouse. Oh, I never saw him in all my life, said Mr. Bumble, nor sold him anything, perhaps. No. Replied Mrs. Bumble. You never had, perhaps, a certain gold locket and ring? said Mr. Brownlow. Certainly not, replied the matron. Why are we brought here to answer to such nonsense as this? Again Mr. Brownlow nodded to Mr. Grimwig, and again that gentleman leapt away with extraordinary readiness. But not again did he return with stout man and wife. For this time he led in two palsied women, who shook and tottered as they walked. You, you've shut the door, the night old Sally died, said the foremost one, raising a shrill hand. But you couldn't shut out the sound, nor stop the chinks. No, no, said the other, looking round her and wagging us toothless jaws. No, no, no. We had her try to tell you what she'd done and saw you take a paper from her hand and watched you too next day to the pawnbroker's shop, said the first. Yes, added the second, and it was a locket and gold ring. We found out that and saw it given you. We were by, oh, we were by. And we know more than that, resumed the first. For she told us often, long ago, that the young mother had told her that, feeling she should never get over it, she was on her way at the time that she was taken ill to die near the grave of the father of the child. Would you like to see the pawnbroker himself? asked Mr. Grimwig with a motion towards the door. No! replied the woman. If he, she pointed to drunks, has been forward enough to confess, as I see he has, and you've sounded all these hags till you've found the right ones, I've nothing to all to say. 
I did sell them, and there we will never get them. What then? Nothing, replied Mr. Brando, except that it remains for us to take care that neither of you is employed as in a situation of trust again. You may leave the dear room. I said Mr. Bumble, looking about him with great foolfulness, as Mr. Grimwig appeared with the two old women. I hope that this unfortunate circumstance will not employ me at my parochial office. Indeed it will, replied Mr. Brownlow. You may make up your mind to that, and think yourself well off besides. It was all Mrs. Bumble. She will do it urged Mr. Bumble, first looking round to ascertain as his partner had left the room. That is no excuse, replied Mr. Brownlow. You were present on the occasion of the destruction of these trinkets, and indeed are the more guilty of the two in the eye of the law, for the law supposes that your wife acts under your direction. A law supposes all, said Mr. Bumble, squeezing his hat empathetically in both hands. A law is an arse, an idiot. I'm not the eye of the law. The law's a bullshit. The worst I wish the law is that his eye may be open for experience. Boy experience. Laying great stress on the repetition of these two words, Mr. Bumble fixed his heart on very tight and putting his hands in his pockets, followed his helpmate downstairs. Young lady, said Mr. Brownlow, turning to Rose, give me your hand. Don't tremble. You need not fear to hear the few remaining words we have to say. If they have, I do not know how they can, but if they have any reference to me, said Rose, pray let me hear them at some other time. I have not strength or spirits now. Nay, returned the old gentleman, drawing her arm through his. You have more fortitude than this, I am sure. Do you know this young lady, sir? Yes. Blight Muggs. I never saw you before, said Nose faintly. I have seen you often, returned Muggs. The father of the unhappy Agnes had two daughters, said Mr. Brandow. What was the fate of the other? The child. The child, replied Muggs. When a father died in a strange place, in a strange name, without a litter, book, or scrap of paper, that even the faintest clue by which his friends or relatives could be erased. The child was taken by his own wretched cottagers. Read it as their own. Go on, said Mr. Brownlow, signing to Mrs. Mayley to approach. Go on! You couldn't find the spot on which those people had repaired, said Monks. What mere friendship fails, hatred often falls away. My mother found it. After a year of cunning search, I had found the child. She took it, did she? No. The people were poor and began to sicken. At least the man did. Of their fine humanity, so she left it with them, giving them a small present of money which would not last long and promising more, which she never meant to send. She didn't quite reply, however on the discontented poverty for the child's unhappiness, but all the history of the sister's shame, for such alterations as suited her, bade them to take good heed of the child, for she came of bad blood, and told them she was illegitimate, and sure to go wrong at one time or another. The circumstances countenanced all this, that people believed it, 
And there the child dragged on in existence, miserable enough to even to satisfy us until a widow lady, residing there at Chester, saw that girl by chance, pitied her, and took her home. There was some cursed spell, I think, against us. For in spite of all our efforts, she remained there and was happy. I lost sight of her two or three years ago and saw her no more than till a few months back. Do you see her now? Yes. Leaning on your arm! But not the less my niece, cried Miss Maylie, folding the fainting girl in her arms. Not the less my dearest child. I don't lose her now for all the treasures of the world. My sweet companion, my own dear girl. The only friend I ever had, cried Rose, clinging to her. The kindest, best of friends. My heart will burst. I can't bear all this. You have borne more, and have been through all, the best and gentlest creature that ever shed happiness in every one she knew, said Miss Maylie, embracing her tenderly. Come, come, my love. Remember who this is who waits to clasp you in his arms. Poor child. See here. Look, look, my dear. Not aunt, cried Oliver, throwing his arms around her neck. We'll never call her aunt. Sister, my own dear sister. But something taught my heart to love so dearly from the first. Rose, dear, darling Rose. Let the tears which fell and the broken words which were exchanged in the long, close embrace between the orphans be sacred. A father, sister, and mother were gained and lost in that one moment. Joy and grief were mingled in the comfort, but there were no bitter tears, for even grief itself arose so softened and clothed in such sweet and tender recollections that it became a solemn pleasure and lost all character of pain. They were a long, long time alone. Mustoff tapped at the door, at length announcing that someone was without. Oliver opened it, glided away, and gave pace to Harry Maylie. I know it all, he said, taking a seat beside the lovely girl. Dear Rose, I know it all. I'm not here by accident, he added after a lengthened silence. Nor have I heard all this tonight, for I knew it yesterday, only yesterday. Do you guess that I have come to remind you of a promise? Stay, said Rose. You do know all. All. You gave me leave, any time within the year, to renew the subject of our last discourse. I did. Not to press you to alter your determination, to pursue the young man, but to hear you repeat it, if you would. I was a clever of station or fortune I might possess at your feet, and if you still adhered your former determination, I pledged myself by no word or act to seek to change it. The same reasons which influenced me then will influence me now, said Rose firmly. If I ever owed strict and rigid duty to her, whose goodness saved me from a life of indigence and suffering, when shall I ever feel it, as I should tonight? It is a struggle, said Rose. What I am proud to make, it is a pang, but what my heart shall bear. The disclosure of tonight, Early began. Disclosure of tonight, replied Rose softly, leaves me in the same position with reference to you as that in which I stood before. You hardened your heart against me, Rose, urged her lover. Oh, Harry, Harry, said the young lady, bursting into tears. I wish I could, and spare myself his pain. Then why inflict it on yourself, said Harry, taking her hand. Think, dear Rose, think what you have heard tonight. Then what I have heard, what have I heard? 
cried Rose. That sense of his deep disgrace so worked upon my own father that he shunned all. There, we have said enough, Harry. We have said enough. Not yet, not yet, said the young man, detaining her as she rose. My hopes, my wishes, prospects, feeling, every thought in life except my love for you have undergone a change. I offer you now no distinction among a bustling crowd, no mingling with a world of malice and detraction, where the blood is called into honest cheeks by aught but real disgrace and shame, but a home, a heart and a home. Yes, dearest Rose, and those, and those alone are all I have to offer. What do you mean? she faltered. I mean but this, that when I left you last, I left you with a firm determination to level all fancied barriers between yourself and me, resolved that if my world could not be yours, I would make yours mine, that no pride of birth should curl the lip at you, for I would turn from it. This I have done. Those who have shrunk from me because of this have shrunk from you, and proved you so far the right. Such power and patronage, such relatives of influence and rank, as smiled upon me then. Look coldly now, for there are smiling fields and waving trees in England's richest county, and by one village church, mine, Rose, my own, there stands a rustic dwelling which you can make me prouder of than all the hopes I have renounced, measured a thousandfold. This is my rank and station now, and here I lay it down. It is a trying thing waiting supper for lovers, said Mr. Grimwig, waking up and pulling his pocket handkerchief from over his head. Truth to tell, the supper had been waiting a most unreasonable time. Neither Miss Rayleigh, nor Harry, nor Rose, who all came to get in together, could offer a word in extenuation. I'd serious thoughts of eating my head tonight, said Mr. Grimwig, but I began to think I shall get nothing else. I'll take the liberty of your alarm of saluting a bride that is to be. Mr. Grimwick lost no time in carrying this notice into effect upon the blushing girl. The example of being contagious was followed both by the doctor and Mr. Brandner. Some people affirm that Harry Maley had been observed to set it, originally in a dark room adjoining, but the best authorities consider this downright scandal, he being young and a clergyman. Oliver, my child, said Miss Bailey, where have you been? Why do you look so sad? There are tears stealing down your face at this moment. What is the matter? It is a world of disappointment, offered in the hopes we most cherish, and hopes that do our nature that greatest honour. Poor Dick was dead. End of chapter 51 of Oliver Twist